if you will, find 2 Peter chapter 2, and we'll start in, and we'll start in verse 16. <laughs> 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 16. Peter writes, let's go back to, we'll go back to verse 15 so we'll complete the whole statement. Forsaking the right way, they had gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Baor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression, a speechless donkey with human voice, and restrained the prophets. Excuse me, a speechless donkey spoke with human voice. And restrain the prophet's madness. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you for the opportunity to come and preach your gospel. Pray, Father God, that I do it um, in the way, Lord, you've laid it upon my heart. I know, Father God, that Father God, I feel that, that today could be vague for people, Lord. I mean, it's my fear, God, not yours ever, Father. We know, Lord, the, the supreme confidence that, the, that, that you have, Father God, in, in the power of your word. And that all I must do is surrender to it. So I pray, Father God, that I'm surrendering to it now, that I trust the Word, God, that I don't trust myself or my study or my prayer, that I trust the Word, Father God, to be, <coughs> God, to be absolutely true and to be absolutely clear, Father, that you are making things clear that are cloudy to unnatural minds, Father God, and unnatural, to natural minds and natural hearts, Father. And that, but we in this room, God, possess the unnatural, possess the supernatural mind and the supernatural heart, Father God, the very mind of God that's been given to his people, Lord. So I pray now, God, that we will hear what's being said today, that we'll embrace it, Father God, we'll find the truth in it, Lord, and that I'll state that truth clearly. I don't want to shy away from it, Father. I know that there are going to be some complicated things that I have to come in this room and talk about, Father, and I pray, Lord, that you bless me to measure up to the complicated things. That, God, when I, we face together, God, these things that are hard sometimes to understand, that you, God, will, will give us that clarity, Lord, that we know we need, Father. We thank you, Father God, for every opportunity to come and to study and to pray together, Father. And we ask you now, God, to bless us as we look at your word. In the name of Christ, I pray, Lord. Amen. <clears throat> okay. Uh, we, we, we're again in the middle of that story of Balaam and King Balak, uh, where uh, the actions and thoughts of the prophet Balaam, hired by King Balak to curse the children of Israel, they're described by Peter. Now, here's the deal. Um, let me step, take a step back for a second. Um, Balaam is apparently, according to Scripture, a legitimate prophet of God. Now, I'm not sure of how that works, and the Bible isn't abundantly clear about how that works. Um, I'm going to say these things about it, so I kind of hopefully smooth that over a little bit. First off, Balaam is not of the house of Israel, not a child of Israel. He's not, not an Israelite, he's not a Jew. But yet he's been called out of the Gentile world to be someone who is capable of preaching and sharing God's word when the prophet was vital to not just the health, uh, any hope of, of redemption for the world, but any hope of redemption for Israel because, understand this, there was no a widespread distribution of the Word of God. People didn't have their own copies of the Torah sitting in their homes. And there also wasn't a high level of, of 
literacy at the time. So people weren't just going to pick up the word and study it themselves. They needed prophets and they needed teachers of the word and teachers of the law to inform them. They needed that. And for the Gentile world, they were so scarce. But Balaam had a very unique opportunity with the truth. The way I try to look at Balaam as I, as I approach this was, I think there's another, shadowy is not the right word, unclear figure in, Old, in the Old Testament that we could compare Balaam to. And that's Melchizedek, priest of, of Salem, selected from the Gentile world to occupy a standing with God that's just, just not, that's unlike no one else's. So much so that it's often been surmised that Melchizedek, the reason why Christ was a priest in the order of Melchizedek was because Mel, Melchizedek was what we'll talk about in a moment, a Christophany. An appearance of Christ in the Old Testament. Balaam's not that. But that God is already sowing the seeds and making the plans for what would be the church itself. When the gospel message uh, given to the chosen people, the Jews, but rejected by them, manifested in Christ, would be given to the entire globe would be the hope of Gentiles also. The only hope for salvation for, for all of us. For all of us. So Balaam is part of that, those, uh, of making those plans. Laying that foundation for what we would call the church. Because we don't see the church as, we see the church as the true Israel. The Israel of God is the church. That group of people called out of darkness into marvelous light by the glory of Christ, by the teaching of the gospel, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's dependent upon the revelation of the word to them. So Balaam, Balaam's got a, a lofty standing here, but we understand so completely that something just goes wrong with Balaam. Now, when I preach this and when I talk about this, folks, I want you to be absolutely clear about this. Don't see this as history. It is. But see this as the Bible would always relate it as warning. This can happen to us. I can fall into this trap as well as you. Don't think that we cannot. We're going to talk about something here in a few moments that's common to the church and common to the world, and it is the trap that ensnares so many of us. And I'll share that momentarily. But let me continue with where I started. He described Peter using the Greek word. Here's the word he uses. Because he says in verse 16, restrain the prophet's madness. It was that word madness that caught my attention. That as I studied through this, I said, I need to understand this. In fact, I almost called this the path to insanity. Titles don't matter. My titles are stupid, I know. But then I said, I can't just be negative about this. There's got to be a path to the opposite of that. Because for the Bible, the insanity that he's talking about, the madness of it isn't, isn't mental illness. The insanity, the madness he's talking about is moral madness, moral insanity. Where someone just goes screaming as hard as they can down the wrong path. Despite everything that God would do to restrain. God gave Balaam chance after chance after chance to turn. God goes extraordinary measures to turn around the life and ministry of Balaam. In the end, despite everything that happens, Balaam still just will not listen. 
He won't listen. Now the word, the Greek word, is paraphrenia, which means madness, folly, or insanity. That's exactly what it means. Specifically, the madness of Balaam is moral and intellectual insanity that stems from a view of God in the Scriptures that's, that's pure folly. It lacks good sense and it's foolish by nature. I'm going to explore this term just a little bit. Y'all give me some time here. Give me some time here. Um, Balaam is opposed in his mission to harm Israel for money. As the Word of God teaches in Numbers chapter 22, verses 31 and 32, let's pull a tiny sliver of the whole incident out. Then the Lord opened the eyes of Balaam. Remember, Balaam's on the donkey, right? And he's riding. And, and, and the angel of the Lord has appeared in this narrowing between, between uh, of, of the path. So there's no way around him. He's, he's cut off. And the donkey, donkey stops. And the donkey runs his foot into the wall and hurts him. He eventually beats the donkey. And the donkey speaks up. The Lord opened the eyes <coughs> excuse me, of Balaam. And he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. And he bowed down and fell on his face. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? Behold, I've come out to oppose you because your way is perverse before me. Another one of those words as we describe what happens with these false prophets in 2 Peter chapter 2. What happens specifically with Balaam? We now have a word in the Greek that describes it. Paraphronia means folly or madness or insanity. We've now been given another English term that we're going to explore. And God says that Balaam's way is perverse. Now we understand what per per perversity is, right? And for us, the connotations are always, are typically sexual in nature, right? And they're so offensive that if to be called, those are fighting words, right? To be called perverted. There's no intellectual answer for that, is there? The only answer you got is just violence. There's no, nothing to say back if someone accuses you of something like that. Uh, a person's honor has been attacked by the use of that term. So when God says to Balaam, your word way is perverse, I think I need to explore that. And look, the word that the angel of the Lord uses to describe the potential transgression of Balaam in attacking the nation of Israel is the Hebrew word yarat. And yarat means precipitate. Now that's a fancy English word. It's got a simple definition. Precipitate are to be done without careful consideration. So what God, or what the, we'll just put it this way, what the, the translators have been pretty consistent about the translation of that word. So what God calls yarat or precipitate or done without careful consideration, the context demands that we call perversity. So God says that if I do something without very careful consideration, now I don't mean every single aspect of my life. Some of us are great at planning and thinking about our lives and having these awesome ways of things to work out. It's great at that. But, but in, within God's house, we can get very guttural. Do you know what I mean? We just kind of fly by the seat of our pants. Now, what, what God says here is that's perversity. That's perversity. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. I'll, I'll give the answer shortly, but I think the answer is very clear that we can latch on to. 
You know what? If I make a wrong financial decision in my life, guess what? So? 50 years from now, you won't remember it. Some of us will be dead or old and too old to remember where we lost $500 50 years ago or $1,000. I know when you're young, $500,000 feels like a million. And you'll freak out over it. Guess what? It doesn't matter. Just like name all the cars you ever owned. I couldn't even start. Most of them wouldn't start either, but I couldn't start. <laughs> Away. See, those are trivial. The, the details of our lives that we will fall out on the floor and kick our feet over are the most trivial things in the world. They do not matter a lick. And once they're gone, they're forgotten so fast. The reason we keep doing dumb stuff is because we don't remember any of that stuff. And maybe we're right. Maybe we're right not to. Because see what? You can live the most outlined and perfect and, and organized life in this world and you can disappoint God doing it. You can live a life that's a cluttered mess and honor and glorify your God. All right? You can do that. It may very well be that we need to be committed and incredibly careful when it comes to the matters of God. Incredibly careful that every decision made here has eternal consequences. Eternal consequences. Yeses and nos can be very important things. Mercifully, our Lord, and mind you, the angel of the Lord is one of those Christophanies, the pre-advent appearance of Christ Jesus. I've been convinced of that for a long time. They're Christophanies. So, so who's standing in the way of that donkey? Is it just some angel? Guess what? In the Bible, you don't bow to angels. You don't worship angels. They're not worthy of worship. They're not worthy of praise. Balaam bows. The angel never says, get up, right? When angels get bowed to, they tell humans, don't worship me because they're not allowed to receive worship. The angels that are receiving worship, we have another name for, right? Fallen angels or demons. They're all about being worshipped because they've established themselves as false gods. Those lost people in the world that worship all those different deities, they really, in reality, according to Moses, pretty good source, are worshipping demons. Hindu has established millions of demons as deities. Millions. Islam worships demons. They worship demons. Demons. This angel of the Lord accepts worship willingly. Therefore, it is the angel that's able to accept worship. And that is the angel of the Lord, or Christ himself. God himself had come to earth and stood in the path of Balaam. It was so important that Balaam understand this and that we vicariously understand this, that what happens? God comes and stands in the way. It's how important it is. So, so if we're talking about being considering everything, really being mindful of God's work and God's will in our lives and for the ministries that God's given all of us, if we're really doing that, then we have to understand that God was so concerned with Balaam that he showed up in person. To obstruct the evil path of this man. He's saying to Balaam that the prophet is being foolish by not considering ex carefully exactly what he is doing. And that this cavalier attitude toward prophecy or curse is a perversion of God's plan for man. 
God did not create us in the church to be cavalier with his word or his way. Now, I'm saying it. Everything we do matters. Everything. There's nothing we do in the name of Christ in this church that does not have eternal, everlasting consequences. No. Balaam is a non-Israelite prophet, but the Lord is requiring him the same discipline and prayerful wisdom that he demands of everyone that speaks in the name of the Lord. This is in many ways a validation of who Balaam is. We don't have to think that Balaam is somehow a trickster. He winds up being. That Balaam is somehow perverting the word of God. He does that exactly. But he doesn't start out that way that God is demanding of Balaam in person that he preach exactly what God says. That's what he says. You go on and you finish your mission, but you say exactly what I tell you to say. The same standard is for me, for Kyle, for any other pastor, any other preacher, any other teacher that stands before people. We preach what God says. The confrontation for the modern so-called prophets, whether they are famous or not, is clear. Prophecy, either divine foreseeing or Holy Spirit-inspired preaching and teaching. Now, I admit, I've used that a long time. I saw that straight from John MacArthur. He wouldn't mind. The Bible gives us two kinds of prophecy. There is divine Holy Spirit-given foreknowing. Disaster is coming. Disaster is coming. We see that in the Old Testament. It's not common. We can prophesy over the United States of America. And there are lots of people out there doing it on TV. We don't need a prophet to know that God's going to judge us. We've got the Bible. As if somehow God's tricking. He's playing around in the Bible. If he says he's going to judge people for doing what we do, then guess what he's going to do? He's going to judge people for doing what we do. We don't need a prophet to tell us that. It's dumb that anyone would think they had to speak for God on that matter. And there are lots of people flying jets, making millions of dollars and living in mansions, who think that we're so dumb that we think we don't have the Bible, we've got to listen to them. And that's ridiculous. It's biblically ridiculous. There's also Holy Spirit-inspired preaching and teaching. It is in many ways the kind of prophecy that's offered within this church. It, it's not nothing fancy, and I would never call it that, but it is biblically what it is. We are The Holy Spirit leads men through the Scriptures so they can teach what God has written there. Simply put, there is no sermon that is ever offered ever that's legitimately a sermon that does not involve the Holy Spirit. It is not empowered by the Holy Spirit. And doing all of this, it's no casual enterprise, but a serious endeavor that should always be marked by prayerful meditation. We're serious about that. We, we, don't, ha we don't do this haphazard. We don't walk in here and just make up some stuff. We, we do it because it's serious, and God judges men that do the opposite, as well he should. May he condemn every single one. Unfortunately, the natural supercilious attitudes of accomplished and ambitious men and women lead them to see preaching and church leadership as an opportunity for power, gain, or ego. Now, we've seen that corrupt, not look not just in those TV people. Don't get me wrong. I'm, I, I'm not going to just fuss about that. That's not, that's not what I've come here for. But we see that in every aspect of church leadership, folks. We see church leadership became a, become a function of someone's need for power, their need for gain, or just a, an outpouring of their own ego. They gotta run everything. And when they come to church, it's the same. 
We see it on the small scale. We see it on the large scale. People who come to God's house for self-satisfaction. For self-satisfaction. Look, King Solomon in many ways ruined by the riches and ease that he did not earn and never knew life without. That's probably the... If there's a, a, a theme of Solomon, I think we can bring forward, just as an aside, we can bring forward into our teaching... Um, one of those ideas of Solomon, the Bible um, really is, is fairly clear about what's wrong. Why does King Solomon to be so wise and so rich and inherit a kingdom of peace? Why does he turn out so badly? Because he never earned any of it. While his daddy was young and, and tending the flocks, Solomon was living in the mansion. Solomon never had to labor to do anything. He never knew a day of hunger or a day of, of, of cold. The way his daddy did. Solomon received what he did not earn. And for that reason he never had any respect for it. None at all. But no, I said that, that's a side. That's just explaining Solomon. But he is ruined by those riches and ease. He did not earn and never knew life without. Speaks of the temptation that is present. When men and women driven by dark forces. Infiltrate the body of believers. And use their position for selfish reasons. Solomon's giving us a heads up here throughout uh, the book of Proverbs. His words in the book of Proverbs are guide for integrity in business as well as gospel-centered leadership within the church. And here's the issue. If I could really have changed the title of this silly thing that I'm talking about, you know what it would have been? I was sitting here this morning thinking, I would call it the cellophane wall. None of that seems childish. It seems childish to me now. I've said it out loud. Things do that, don't they? You say them out loud, they don't sound quite as cool. Cellophane, you know why? Because cellophane walls is a divider, but it's easily perforated, isn't it? It's easily broken through. And I think this is not just a guide, it's a guide for business, but it's, not a, but it's also a guide for church. And I think this is also teaching for life, is that there are a lot of us that are um, claiming Christ as Lord and Savior, but we live our lives in many fashion, in many ways, Contrary to what he says. I just don't mean the outward undeniable sin. I mean how we conduct our lives. I mean how we conduct ourselves. And so we need to talk about that for just a few moments. It's a guide for integrity as well as gospel-centered church leadership. Excuse me, gospel-centered leadership within the church. And the command of God for the lives of his people is that we are not tempted to achieve in this world by evil means. No, there's the issue. There's the issue. Is that there are lots of people in this world who claim Christ Jesus, but they still do tons of things by evil means. Now, look, I have many times, I know I hate to share just of my inner, inner problems, and I know you're bored with them, and you should be. But many times in my life as I've gotten older, I have considered running for public office. Anybody in this room ever consider running? Besides Kyle. We know Kyle. Um, anybody else ever consider running for public office? You know why I don't, Brother Buddy? Because I don't think you can be elected any other way than by evil means. I think if you really take the Bible legitimately, literally, as it says, I think it's very, very, very difficult in this world to get elected and stay elected by any other way than evil means. Than what the Bible would call evil. I think about the politics you know about in your, in your personal life. Is it good or is it evil? It's just evil. People do evil things. And sometimes we assent to it because we get what we want, right? 
We get one we think we like or they'll help us. And we get caught in their evil means, don't we? Evil means, that's what we're afraid of right now. We're going to have another name for it. And the Bible has a wonderful name for it that all the modern translations are very clear about. This is what this word means. Let me show you. The Bible has a word for this kind of behavior and the modern translations extremely consistent in rendering the word accurately and impactfully. Proverbs 24, 8 says, whoever plans to do evil will be called a schemer. A schemer. And why is there a cellophane? Why am I talking about a cellophane wall? Because I think there are a lot of us, a lot of us in our personal lives, whether in the church or in our personal lives, uh, in our business lives, have to say, you know what? What I'm doing is not, is not evil, but it's scheming and it's separated from evil means by a wall of cellophane. By the strictest definition, it is not evil. But in an instant, it can punch through that wall and be as evil as everyone else's deeds. Why avoid running for public office? Because there's no way to do it without being evil. Why avoid doing some things in this world? Why not have to settle for being poor sometimes when a lot of people are trying to get rich? Because the, best, the easiest way to get rich is what? Evil means. Schemes. It's the easiest way to do it. In Hebrew, the word is Baal. The word that Solomon uses is Baal. Borrowed from the Phoenicians and others. And it is the name of the false god of so many Canaanite tribes, meaning owner or lord. Whoever plans to do evil will be called a Baal. That is a cursed word. When you say that word, even if you don't speak a single syllable of Hebrew... You know it's bad, don't you? That no one should call you a bail. But that's what they are. Rendered schemer in modern scholasticism, the English word characterizes the false god, a demon, that bears it as a proper name in all acolytes who would seek to advance themselves by way of evil plans. If there's one thing the Bible would say today, what was wrong with Balak and Balaam? They were scheming. Balak was scheming to get back at Israel, and Balaam was scheming to make some money. It was a scheme. It was a plot. In the end, it was demonic. And when we scheme, we, tempt, we are tempted to be just as evil. For this reason, for the demonic nature of one who tries to plan and scheme his way to success in or out of the church, and the church has seen what it's like when scheming happens in its midst. There's nothing sadder than when you have a church defined by scheming. And don't sit here and look at me like sheep. You know good and well that this church has had scheming and that every church we've ever been in, if you've been in many of them, had scheming. People like junior high girls would go from group to group to group telling what everybody else said. Grown men scheming, looking for political advantage in God's house. It's a tragedy is what it is. And it will destroy what God has commanded us to build. It will destroy it. God condemns this kind of underhanded behavior as much as any other sin. Solomon writes in Proverbs 28, verse 6, that better is a poor man who walks in his integrity than a rich man who is crooked in his ways. So it's better to be poor than crooked. It's better to be poor than crooked. It's better to hurt and be hungry than tempt God by a lack of, of, of integrity. 
If everybody else is making money do it, doing it, don't assume that it's right. If everybody's getting ahead by doing it, don't assume that it's right. According to our Lord, it's better to be poor and have integrity than rich and be crooked. Not just in the private sector, but in the church. We must question and consider what it means that some men of God may be using their position for improper gain. And that is right. Understand this. If the preacher's got a big house and the preacher's got, got tons of cars and great clothes and $5,000 tennis shoes and, and jets and all this kind of stuff, it doesn't mean it's wrong, but it don't mean it's right either. We see a man of God that is prospering in that way. And to be honest with you, in a worldly way, we better ask all the questions in the world. There are a lot of people that we know that have been led horribly astray by videotapes and DVDs and television programs that all they had to do was look at the lifestyle of the man and they could have seen it. That's not a man of God. That's a man of evil scheming. That's a man of ungodly gain. It was obviously true. But once again, we weren't wise. <clears throat> in Proverbs 19.1, the Lord better defines what he means by crooked ways. In, in, verse, in chapter 28, verse 6, when Solomon writes, Better is a poor person who walks in his integrity than one who is crooked in speech and is a fool. Now we get a better definition. The defining characteristic of this kind of schemer seeks to advance himself by way of corruption in the church or out of the church. Is that this type of person has crooked speech... They tell you what you want to hear. The Bible calls them later on flatterers. Flatterers. Now, some of that is weakness in us. I was reading the other day uh, uh, just, some, just some general things that I like to read. And one of those, a quote I came across was, and I'll, I'll misquote it, but I'll give you the, the basic truth of it, that, that I think we open ourselves up to this shameless flattery that corrupts the church because most of us, including me at times, are entirely too sensitive to criticism. And what this writer said it was brilliant was when you open yourself up to criticism, criticism transforms into advice. Most of the time somebody's told me I was doing something wrong and I saw it as criticism. And they may have just been giving me advice. And even if they were just giving me criticism, how I embrace it transforms it, doesn't it? If I embrace it as advice, it's good advice. It doesn't matter how they meant it. It's how I take it. So, so we open ourselves up to these kind of crooked speakers, these, these shifty individuals, and they're foolish. Again, like Balaam, they're not untalented in their approach to people, and they're not ungifted when it comes to the matters of the church. Often they can teach and preach and speak eloquently. They can do that. Men and women of accomplishment. These believers are tempted by their adequacy and fail to understand that human wisdom and skill do not replace the work of the Holy Spirit in guiding the hearts of men and women in the church or the marketplace. What I'm saying is this, is that I think there's another corrupting factor for us, is the fact that some of y'all need to come over to my side where I've never been good at anything. It's very easy when you have been good at everything in your life to come into church and feel like your adequacy and your wisdom and your intelligence and your skill is something that the church needs. You know what the church needs? God will use your adequacy and your wisdom and your skill. But what the church really needs is obedience to the Word and to the Holy Spirit. The church doesn't need for me to come along and tell it what to do. The church needs for me to point to the cross. 
to direct it to the Word, to share the truth that God has already revealed. When I can do that, we're on firm footing. If we follow a person, we're always headed for the ditch every time. Solomon explains in Proverbs 6.14 that these schemers with their with perverted heart devise evil, continually sowing discord. The mark of these men and women in the church, leaders or not, is that they sow discord everywhere they go. In the end, that, there's, the, there's the final mark. So when they invade the church or when they invade, invade the personal life or an enterprise, you're going to know this, that in the end it's always about them. And they're always going to sow, sow disharmony. They're always going to sow discord. They never bring peace. Ever. They always bring conflict. They are incapable of bringing peace because it's all about them. It's never about the Prince of Peace. The answer to this issue, the antidote to the madness of scheming in the church and as a lifestyle is the fear of the Lord. Holy fear restrains madness. Fear makes us think about the consequences of our actions, unintended or intended. And fear causes the hearts of men and women to consider God's intention for our lives before we act on our ambitions. Here's the deal. When I am absolutely restrained by God's fear... It is an acknowledgement that his way is greater than my way. I'm not worried about, about being heard. I'm not worried about, about leading as much because I'm not qualified to lead. And neither you or you or any one of you. We're all incompetent. The only one qualified to lead is the one who occupies the throne. He's the qualified leader. Fear instills that in me. Fear drives away my own ambition, my own sense of accomplishment. Fear makes me care about everybody else more than myself. Why? Because in the end, I fear God. I know who I am. Solomon teaches in Proverbs 14, verse 2, Whoever walks in uprightness fears the Lord, but he who is devious in his ways despises him. In the end, when I am devious, when I am a schemer, what I do illustrate is this, is that I despise God. When we scheme and plot, it is an indulgence in the darkness of human nature that's ungoverned by God's logical and beneficial fear. When men walk outside the fear of God, he is uh, unhonored in our lives. God is unhonored in our lives, and we are precarious in our footing. When God is unhonored, we fail. We fall. He is unhonored when we do not fear God. Finally, Paul warns the church concerning this path and where it leads when he writes in Romans 1, 29-31. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, innovators of evil, disobedient to me, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. The apostle perfectly describes where the path of scheming inside or outside the church outside of the direct work the church leads. When I'm a schemer, when I embrace scheming, this is where it goes. Where's it end? Ruthlessness. Moral insanity. I will do what I want to achieve what I believe I should achieve. I'll lie, cheat, and steal in the church and out because I've embraced a life of scheming. And the final, final place scheming ends is always in ruthlessness. To be filled with every kind of unrighteousness. 
No one can unleash in their lives the elements of darkness and not be singed. As Solomon said in Proverbs 6.27, Can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes and not be burned? We assume that somehow we can do this. It's just like an addict talking, guys. I've got a control of this. I can do this and it won't matter. I can do this and I, I can control And you can't. Once I embrace scheming in a small way, I'll embrace scheming in every way. Once I embrace evil ways in small ways, I'll embrace evil ways in every way. I'll always go as far as I can. Do you know why? Because there's no restraint. Because there's no fear. For the people of God, our lives are not to be defined by the world's wicked machinations, carried out and redeemed lives, but by the integrity of the gospel that defines and controls everything that we are. People defined by the gospel and not by wicked scheming. Look, the lives of believers can be filled with the most intense suffering for the glory of their risen Lord. Warren Wiersbe added that the school of suffering never graduates any students. So ask God to teach you the lessons he wants you to learn. So we're learning all this in the midst of suffering. Why do some people turn to scheming and, and evil ways? Because we're suffering. Because it's hard being poor. It's hard taking abuse at work. It's hard being overlooked. And treated dis, being treated disrespectfully. It's hard to do. That's all suffering. And we want to, we want to graduate from suffering, as Wearsby said. We want out of the suffering. What we need to find out is a way to walk through suffering. Because if you're a Christian, your life is defined by filling up the afflictions of Christ. By, by legitimate and real suffering. We suffer because we're His. In the depth of our blood-bought freedom, Christians can be tempted to deny Christ by our methods and our attitudes. Living a life that mirrors the priorities of the world and that the commitment of God the Son in atoning for the sins of the world. Our job is to live like Christ. And so often we just simply don't want to. The prophet Micah challenged the church to remember this story when he wrote Micah 6.5. Oh, my people, remember that Balak, king of, ba king of Moab, devised what Balaam, the son of Baor, answered him and what happened from Shittim to Gogol that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. In response to all of all that happened with Balaam and Balak, God's response was an action of righteousness. Remember, the answer to Balak's scheme and Balaam's ambition, the righteous acts of the Lord, I think defined best by James, in opposing the proud and giving grace to the humble. He opposed the proud, he gave grace to the humble. For this reason, God through Micah marks out the path of peace for the church. What the opposite of being a schemer looks like, I'll show you. Micah 6 8, he writes, He's told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. The only path forward for man or woman of God is the path that does justice, that is defined by kindness, that walks in genuine humility, and does all this by God's standards and not those of man. Hence the issue. In this world, you can practice a justice that's part of evil scheming. You can practice a kindness that's a byproduct of, 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 of wickedness. Because the world has their own alternate definitions of everything. They're always demonic in nature. They're given from below and not from above. But what God commands here is that we, we attach ourselves to His, to His righteousness. To his kindness. To his humility. The call is not to conform our lives to the image of the world. But to be transformed into the image of God. In order to convict the world. 
Our justice will not satisfy the mob. Our kindness falls short of indulgence. And our humility hides our crown. What God calls us to do, Micah 6.8, in response to the wicked scheming of Balaam that defines this world and so much of the church is to conform ourselves to God's image and not the image of this world. Let's stand together and pray.